This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. A new report finds that Wisconsin is one of 13 states to have an almost complete halt to abortions after the Dobbs v. Jackson decision, reports the Capital Times. The report issued by the National Society of Family Planning found that in the months before the Dobbs ruling, there were around 600 abortions performed every month in Wisconsin. But because of that ruling return, Wisconsin is back to the law on the books, a complete ban enacted in 1849. While that ban does allow for abortion to be performed to save the life of the mother, the report found nearly no abortions have been performed in Wisconsin since the decision last summer. The report did note that it suppressed any counts less than 10 in order to avoid identifying anyone who got an abortion after the Dobbs decision. Wisconsin Attorney General Josh Call announced today that he is joining a multi-state coalition to challenge a decision that could restrict access to a popular abortion medication. Last week, a federal judge in Texas put a stop to the FDA's approval of Mifepristone, which is used to end early pregnancies. The drug has been approved by the FDA since the year 2000. Call is joining 24 other state attorney generals from across the nation and is urging the courts to put a stay on the ruling. In a statement today, Call said the Mifepristone had been used safely for years and that blocking its use could drastically curtail abortion access for millions of Americans. According to current estimates, medicated abortions account for over half of all abortions performed in the United States. Weeks after a deadly school shooting in Nashville, two Republican lawmakers are proposing to allow school employees in Wisconsin to carry guns into school buildings. The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports that State Representative Scott Allen of Waukesha and State Senator Corey Tomczyk of Mosinee, both Republicans, introduced the bill yesterday. Currently, state law bans all firearms on school grounds. Under the proposed bill, a school board could vote to adopt a policy to allow licensed school employees to carry a firearm into their schools. Additionally, the bill would waive fees associated with obtaining a concealed carry license for teachers. Evers has already said he would veto any legislation that weakens schools' ban on guns. Cardinal Stritch University in Milwaukee will close at the end of the spring semester of May of this year, reports Wisconsin Public Radio. The university's president, Dan Scholes, says this decision was hard, but due to financial difficulties, low enrollment, and the pandemic, the school will have to close. Scholes said it was no longer possible to provide high-quality education. Instead, the administration will refocus its efforts to helping students, faculty, and staff find new opportunities. The school was known for its diversity, with about a quarter of the students identifying as Black or Hispanic. A new addiction treatment center could be coming to Sun Prairie, the Wisconsin State Journal reports. James Crawford, CEO of several sober living homes in Madison, wants to open an addiction treatment center in what is currently an assisted living facility in Sun Prairie. The center would provide treatment, therapy, and education for one to two months for people with substance use disorders who are also experiencing mental health disorders. The proposal will go before the Sun Prairie Plan Commission at its meeting tonight at 7 and has the full support of the Sun Prairie Common Council. With over 2,000 responses, the results of a survey over a redesigned Lake Monona waterfront in downtown Madison are in, with one option being heavily favored over the others. Madison residents preferred the designs of Sasaki, a Boston redevelopment firm, in every category listed. These categories include which plan understands Madison residents, which has the best potential to improve Madison, as well as others. The survey asking for public input on the Monona waterfront redesign was opened back in January. 
The Lake Monona Waterfront Ad Hoc Committee will take the public comments seriously during their evaluation process, they say. They will choose a design by early May and work with the winning team on a final blueprint. Then it will go to the Madison Common Council in August and then go through various approval processes before construction can begin. And now on to today's top stories. The Madison bus system is changing a lot. Starting June 11th, the schedule and routes of its bus lines will be transformed as Metro's network redesign project goes into effect. To help ease the transition and help you learn your new route, Madison Metro is hiring navigators to help passengers on the ground. WRT reporter Abigail Levins has more. Do you ever find yourself confused while taking the bus? Or have you ever missed the bus because the schedule changed at the last minute? The good news is that Madison Metro Transit is hiring. They are seeking young adults to serve as ride guides this summer. In the past, those ride guides have been on paper. Guidebooks that used to be available at the front of every bus to help passengers find their way. Metro Transit scrapped these copies during the pandemic. And now, as routes and schedules of the buses are slated to change in June, help from a ride guide will come from a friendly, human navigator. Jesse Stammer is a marketing specialist with Madison Metro Transit. She says that they want to create shorter and more route-specific brochures that are easier to navigate. Stammer says this is the biggest change the bus system has seen in 25 years. So it might be difficult for riders to figure out bus changes right away. And that's why the city is hiring. Ride guides will start at the end of May. We wanted to have people out on the streets where our riders are um, before that change to let people know. The guides will stay on a little bit after the change that goes into effect on June 11th. Then they will come back again in August to help students navigate the new routes. The ride guides paid at $25 an hour will stand at busy bus stops, community centers, and employment centers to direct people to the best stop for their destination. They will provide information about stops, routes, and how to ride the bus. They will also have paper maps and schedules to give out for more information. Stamer says that no, ride guides will not have to memorize the entire 127-page guidebook. Instead, they will learn about station-specific information to give the best help to people in that area. Guides will ask questions and engage with transit riders to hear about their experiences. They can take feedback about public transit service and take note of customer needs. Stammer says they have not done anything like this before. This is our first hourly position that we've hired at Metro Transit, I, maybe ever, for sure in the last like 20-ish years or so. Um, so this is a brand new position for us. Stammer says they hope that the ride guides enjoy their jobs and that they will want to continue to help when the new Bus Rapid Transit line launches next year. When the time for in-person ride guides is up, Stammer says there will still be resources for people who need help navigating the new routes. Riders can always call the Transit Call Center, Visit MyMetroBus.com to see routes or pick up a paper brochure. Schedules will also be posted at bus stops like before. And you can still find your bus routes on your smartphone app. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Abigail Levins. Cooliard Solar Foundation's unique model helps Wisconsin schools and nonprofits benefit from solar energy. Even with some uncertainties about policy matters, though, the program is finding ways to reach entities that serve low-income households. Mike Moen with the Wisconsin News Connection has more. Since 2017, the Wisconsin Business Leaders Foundation has helped nonprofits and municipal organizations buy solar panels. More recently, these entities are being given direct access to the equipment. Solar for Good was established by Cal Couliard with the goal of offering grants for solar purchases. Since 2019, it's provided panels instead of cash, 
allowing it to obtain equipment in bulk and bring down the cost. Executive Director Hetty Brown says they're being used for two housing developments, slashing energy bills for clients so they can eventually no longer need the aid. The goal of this program is to help people achieve financial stability and self-sufficiency. The clients that we serve have been relying on energy assistance payments despite their homes being weatherized. So far, Solar for Good has helped 161 organizations. That's despite the state's lack of legal clarity around third-party-owned solar installations and the difficulty non-taxed entities have accessing federal solar incentives. Last year, the foundation revised its operating model so it can keep expanding and donating panels rather than tapping out its funding as initially planned. And Brown says the program has been a game-changer for nonprofits like hers because it gives them more room for flexibility. Whether it's reducing our own organizational costs so that we can reinvest dollars into programming or directly address the needs of clients on their own homes, the Solar for Good grant has really changed our perspective and how we address the needs of our community. The foundation also has a separate Solar for Schools program that raises revenue by selling solar while also giving grants. And it provides curriculum to help schools teach students about renewable energy. Mike Moen, Wisconsin News Connection. Find our rate trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. This story was produced with original reporting from Kerry Leiderson for Energy News Network. The Madison Metropolitan School District has been sued at least six times over the past 19 months over its failure to provide open records to the public. It's even gotten them some notoriety as earlier this year it was bestowed the quote, No Friend of Openness Award from the Wisconsin Freedom of Information Council over delays in providing records. In recent weeks, even the district's own communications director, Tim Lamons, has sued the district, though his lawsuit is working to, to block a complaint about him from being released. Last night, the Madison School Board met to discuss their open records policy, but even that was met with barriers as the public meeting's live stream went down at the beginning of the meeting. To learn more about the district's recent transparency issues, WORT producer Nate Weggehout spoke with Scott Gerard, K-12 education reporter with the Capital Times, who even has a pending open records request with the district himself. Now, Scott, tell me about the lawsuit that's been brought forward by communications director with the Madison School District, Tim Lamonds. Uh, what's, what's the context of that lawsuit, and why does he want these records blocked? Yeah, so uh, it all started late last year. Uh, a local TV reporter for NBC15 uh, did an open records request for any emails mentioning her name or an NBC15 reporter, a, a few different terms that could I'd be referring to her. Uh, and so she requested those emails over a year-long period. And one of, as we now know, one of the records responsive to that request is a staff complaint that was filed uh, about Tim Lamonts. Now, the dispute is whether it should be released. Lamonts sued the district to try to prevent its release. So, so most of the records have been sent to the reporter. These were not because they were about a specific individual, and the open records law uh, requires entities to alert an individual that records relating to them may be released, and they have a chance to dispute that. So he is disputing that, and to do so, he he sued the district to stop its release. Uh, So that happened late last month. And his argument is, uh, in the legal briefing, his lawyer wrote that because 
the district found the complaint without merit, um, that it should not be released because of the damage it would do to his reputation. The district, in its response, in its legal briefing response to the lawsuit, uh, argued that it should be able to release the record and that it should not have to redact anything in the record. Uh, it sort of threw some water on the argument that it was found without merit. Well, it acknowledged that parts of the complaint were found without merit. Uh, according to the district, the complainants withdrew some of the things they were complaining about before it was officially filed. So some of some pieces of their original complaint, which is what is responsive to this records request, uh, were not found with or without merit. There wasn't a judgment from the district on them. And so uh, they pointed out that not everything in there was found to be without merit. So it, it, it's unclear, you know, what's going to happen. It, it sounds like the next step is likely oral arguments uh, in front of a judge, and those are currently scheduled for May 25th. So that's still a little ways away. Um, in the meantime, there will be some more briefs filed and, and things like that. And NBC 15 has also joined the lawsuit as an intervener pushing for the release of the record. And now, sticking with open records, the school board met last night to, among other things, discuss the district's open records policy. And we'll get to that policy in a moment. But before they could get to that, their meeting to talk about this sort of transparency was hindered when their live stream uh, went down. Uh, tell, tell me a little bit about what happened there. Yeah, it, it's somewhat ironic given what was on the agenda. And I know, you know, the board wanted to discuss this open records uh, policy because they know there's been some issues with it. Um, and so it was ironic that that conversation uh, had to take place in sort of an odd uh, environment, unusual environment. Uh, so the district normally live streams its uh, conversation or its meetings, uh, all school board meetings, and it has since before the pandemic. So those are broadcast on YouTube uh, and also allows people to attend in person. Obviously, uh, since the pandemic, at the beginning of the pandemic, in-person meetings weren't happening, so live stream was the only access that, that folks had for a while. They have opened meetings up, again, for people to attend in person for the most part, but their legal notice still has had some language on there that says in-person for BOE members only, re referring to Board of Education members. Um, and so that creates a little gray area about whether it was open to the public. Now, there were some members of the public in attendance. You know, the district has maintained it is open to the public, that that note was for staff. Um, but they ended up having some technical difficulties, which they uh, blamed on YouTube uh, to upload their normal live stream. They delayed the start of their meeting for nearly half an hour trying to figure those out and eventually decided just to record it and upload the videos later. Uh, and those videos ended up being posted, I think, early this morning. Well, one video was posted early this morning, and then there are other parts uh, of the meeting, one of which was posted later uh, and had also been broadcast on Facebook Live by school board member Nikki Vandermeulen as an alternative to the to the normal YouTube live stream. So there there were technical difficulties that led to it, and, and I don't think there was bad intent by anyone, but it, it certainly... Uh, was a tough time to have that happen, given the conversation on transparency they were going to have. And now, as we mentioned before, the sort of one of the things that they were going to talk about was the district's open records policy. And let's just start with what's currently on the books. What is the current policy in 
terms of open records in the MMSD school district? Yeah, so there's a policy that uh, was originally passed in December of 2001, so more than two decades ago, and it's a pretty bare policy. Uh, It does not include many specifics. It outlines who is the legal custodian of records and the, the position that would be that legal custodian does not exist, at least with that title, any longer, and certainly doesn't uh, serve as the legal custodian for open records anymore. So, you know, that part of the policy is outdated. Uh, there's not a whole lot of details about, you know, what constitutes a record, uh, what, uh, what all they can charge for. So it, it does include potential fee for reproduction for, of public records, uh, you know, copying costs or printing costs. But it does not include anything outlining fees for staff time to locate those records, which they have been charging and is allowable under state law. But it's, it's a pretty spare policy at this point. And because of some issues over the past couple of years with responsiveness to requests that have included multiple lawsuits against the district regarding the lack of timeliness uh, in responding to some of those requests. Uh, I think the district, the, the board really wants to revisit this and try to iron out what isn't working and how the district can improve. So one piece of the conversation that happened uh, is there, there is a position that is supposed to be a public records clerk uh, dedicated entirely to responding to these. That is vacant and has been for a little while now. Um, and so, you know, an immediate solution would be filling that position, which the district has said it's had some trouble with. But uh, the district's general legal counsel uh, cast some doubt on whether even having one person in that role would make things timely for, for, for a long-term uh, solution because she just said the, the complexity of some of these requests are getting more complicated uh, to fulfill and having to work with requesters to figure out what exactly it is they want. And so it sounds like there's going to need to be some bigger conversations, you know, beyond just filling that position um, for the districts to start fulfilling this legal obligation as a, as a public body. It, it does have a legal obligation to supply these records. And as you mentioned in your reporting, uh, you, you said some of the, the long wait times people have for uh, when they request records. And you mentioned in your reporting that the CAP Times has actually uh, had one request in for over a year that has not yet been fulfilled. So have, 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 did they mention any other than hiring on more staff? Did they mention any ideas to, to sort of streamline this process and make it more, more uh, accessible? Yeah, a couple of things. One was uh, mention of potentially using outside counsel, um, so sort of contracting out for records requests, and that's something some other districts do. According to uh, MMSD's general legal counsel, she said she had some conversations with districts that contract that work out. And then there was also some discussion among the board about is there a better way to have people submit these requests? So, you know, right now the process is there's there's an email public records email that goes to someone and it goes to a different staff member then and gets cataloged and et cetera, et cetera, through the process. And so they wondered if there's ways to sort of smooth out that process, both for the requesters and for staff uh, and help staff be more certain about what a requester is looking for. So one suggestion, you know, they didn't get into too many specifics, but was the idea of rather than having it just be an email, having some sort of Google form uh, that asks more specific questions that can help requesters delineate more 
uh, succinctly what exactly they're looking for so that the records respondents don't have to sort of guess uh, based on the language that's in there. So that was one thing that was mentioned last night. There was no you know, push or general, like, this is what we want to do. But there was just conversation and and it sounded like board members and staff are interested in continuing the conversation to to find some of those solutions. And now, Scott, do you have just any final thoughts on transparency within the MMSD school district? No, I think it's good that these issues are coming to light. Uh, These conversations are happening. You know, uh, like you mentioned, the Cap Times has had its own issues with open records and and some requests have come more quickly than others. And uh, I just think it's important to recognize, you know, the, the importance of transparency in a public body like the, the Madison school district. And so I'm glad the conversations are happening. I've been talking with Scott Gerard, K through 12 education reporter with the cap times about recent issues of transparency within the Madison school district. Now you can read all of his reporting on the subject online over at captimes.com. Scott, thank you so much for talking with me here today. Thanks for having me. The time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful here with Christian Knutson. Thanks for joining us. Every Tuesday, we check in with a daily Cardinal for the latest news from the UW-Madison campus. This week on the Cardinal Call, producer Madeline Afonso spoke with sports editor Donnie Slusher about the university's new coach for the men's hockey team. to the Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. I'm producer Madeline Afonso, joined today by sports editor Donnie Slusher to talk about Badger hockey and sports. Thank you for coming on. Pleasure to be here, Maddie. Thank you. The men's hockey team just hired a new head coach, Mike Hastings. Can you tell us a little bit about the recent men's hockey season and the new coach? Um, men's hockey season uh, was quite disappointing. They finished dead last in the Big Ten. Uh, they were the only team in the Big Ten uh, with a losing record, um, and as the second season in a row with a losing record. And you know that's uh, Wisconsin is traditionally a very good hockey program, and it was Granado just wasn't doing good enough. So they fired uh, Coach Tony Granado uh, shortly after shortly after the season ended, and then hired Hastings uh, March thirtieth. This seems reminiscent of last fall's football season where a new head coach was also hired. What are your thoughts on all the changes within Wisconsin men's sports? Yeah, so this is uh, athletic director Chris McIntosh's uh, second year. Um, he succeeded the uh, great Barry Alvarez, who was a uh, football coach since the 90s and was uh, AD since 2005. And uh, Barry was known for, you know, a lot of his decisions, he made decisions slowly. He waited a while to, to make bold moves. And when he did make bold moves, it was usually in favor of uh, someone he was familiar with or someone familiar to the program or shared the program's views. Um, so this behavior in the past two years for McIntosh has been um, uh, pretty stunning, you know, um, just as a fan. In most, you know, coaches getting fired is not a is not a common occurrence at Wisconsin, especially two in major sports and the same uh, school year. 
Um, so yeah, it, it definitely it definitely shows a, a new, more aggressive approach. Meanwhile, in women's sports, the hockey team won their seventh national title this season. What has it been like to have writers reporting on this milestone and accomplishment? Uh, it's incredibly fun to cover sports that are successful, and especially sports that deserve to get more acclaim, like women's hockey uh, winning championship this past uh, or j- just just last month. And then obviously uh, volleyball winning uh, last academic school year. Um, and it's just, uh, it's incredible seeing such great coaches and such great players uh, be rewarded for their work and uh, find some more, you know, buzz on the campus that is lacking in women's sports. Can you talk in general about the success of women's teams at Wisconsin and the recognition as compared to men's teams? Um, well, like most universities, most people, majority of sports fans only seem to care about um, football and men's basketball, which is a shame. Um, and recently, football has been struggling. They fired a coach and brought in a new one this past year. And men's basketball missed the NCAA tournament for just a second time this century. So the, it's it's not like men's sports are too are too you know popular and, and mind consuming for fans to enjoy female sports. So I think it's incredible that the women's sports are starting to are starting to you know are continuing to succeed. And fans are starting to pay attention. For relative to most schools, so well, Wisconsin does have uh, some pretty decent uh, fans for women's sports. Like they've played games in the Kohl Center and you know bigger venues, and it usually sells out or usually you know garners a lot of interest. And they're usually near the top of most uh, attendance uh, rankings. So it, it's just it's just nice to to get some more buzz on top of the pre-existing buzz. What was your favorite moment in Badger sports this semester so far? Uh, women's hockey winning, for sure. It was so unlikely. Uh, the The team has experienced success before. Uh, coach um, Mark Johnson has won. Uh, this was his seventh national championship as a head coach. So it's not totally out of the realm of possibility for, for them to succeed. But the team was so young and they came in, uh, they entered the uh, tournament uh, unseated. Um, it was it was one of the more spectacular moments in in Badger sports that I can remember throughout my entire life. What are you most excited about for Wisconsin sports come next fall? Uh, definitely football. Uh, getting a coach like Luke Fickle was something that Wisconsin fans could only dream of in the past. It was incredibly unlikely to get. I mean, he he won the national. Uh, he won like the national coach of the year like two years ago, I believe. He took Cincinnati to the the national. Uh, to the um, uh, college football playoff, which is stunning, which is absolutely stunning. So it, it is incredibly, It's most Badger fans are incredibly excited for, for Fickle and just to see how different the the, the team is going to be. Um, they hired an offensive coordinator who is from the South, who has done, uh, who, who has ran schemes other than just uh, designed purely to run the ball. So uh, Badger fans are quite excited. Is there any other Badger sports news you'd like to share or talk on? Um, spring training is currently going on for football. They're, uh, they'll be having like an exhibition on April 22nd called The Launch. Tickets are free. Uh, that'll, be your, that'll be the first real chance for fans to, to see the team. Um, that's the main thing. Again, uh, men's hockey is continuing, to make de- is, is continuing to make decisions. They just hired an assistant coach today. Uh, so that'd be something good to, to keep your eye out on. But um, most sports have, I mean, softball is still going on, but a lot of the most followed sports are done for the year. Um, but there's still plenty of off-season 
subjects to look into. Thank you so much, Johnny, for coming on. Thank you for having me. In other campus news, UW Board of Regents approves a 4% tuition hike for in-state undergrads. The University of Wisconsin Board of Regents announced on March 30th their plan to increase tuition for University of Wisconsin-Madison in-state undergraduates by 4%, the first university tuition hike in over a decade. Starting in the 2023-24 academic year, tuition for in-state undergrads will increase by $372 per year to a new annual rate of $9,946 per year. Tuition for out-of-state undergrad students will increase by 3% or $1,137. Total tuition and fees for out-of-state undergrads will rise to $40,611. Additionally, university housing costs will increase by $200, while meal plans will increase by $50. UW-Madison estimates increased tuition rates will generate around $21.5 million in additional revenue for the university. The additional revenue will go toward expanding access to high-demand courses, growing need-based aid, and providing new teaching and student service positions. Students receiving Bucky's Tuition Promise and Bucky's Bell Pathway, two programs which provide assistance to low-income Wisconsin residents, will not see their cost of attendance increase. These programs are funded entirely by private donors and money from other institutional resources. The UW system plans to introduce the Wisconsin Tuition Promise next fall, a financial aid program similar to Bucky's Tuition Promise, but for campuses other than UW-Madison. UW system officials previously committed to funding the program's 2023 student cohort using $13.8 million in funds. That's all for our Cardinal Call this week. We'll catch you back here soon. Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com. This has been the Cardinal Call created by student journalists at UW-Madison. vegetarian restaurant scene is growing in Madison and Just Veggies is ready to serve a growing customer base. James Bloodsaw, one of the plant-based vegan, one of the owners of the plant-based vegan restaurant, has been serving customers since 2018 through pop-ups and monthly meal plans available for purchase online. On April 4th, Just Veggies was named by the Wisconsin Small Business Administration as the Emerging Small Business of the Year. Earlier today, WRT reporter Kelsey Krogan spoke with Bloodsaw about what's next for the restaurant. Could you explain who you are and what Just Veggies is? Uh, my name is James Bloodsaw, and I'm the owner of Just Veggies. We're a 100% vegan restaurant and catering service. Awesome. And what was your inspiration for Just Veggies, and how did you come to find it as a business? Like 12 years ago, well, 12 years ago, my father was on his dying bed and he had like high blood pressure and diabetes and heart failure and liver problems. And before he passed away, he told me, don't end up like him. So after that, once he passed away, I changed my lifestyle. I started eating healthy and exercising. Once I made that transition, I couldn't find me food to eat. So I started making food. So I was working for Upstairs Downstairs Catering. I've been a executive chef for, well, I've been working for Upstairs Downstairs Catering for about 20 years, something like that. So I started creating 
food and bringing it in and having my coworkers try it. And they was they was uh, saying that, you know, this, this is actually pretty good. You know, you might want to start selling this or something. So I thought they was just pulling my leg, you know. And so I ended up getting in the Madison Makers Fair. And I said that I'm going to give out some samples. You know, people like it. You know, I'm going to start a business. If not, you know, I just continue to work for upstairs, downstairs, cater. It was like a big response and people was loving the food. And I was like, oh, wow. Okay, I guess I might be onto something here. And then that's pretty much how Just Veggie started. I noticed you were founded just a few years before the pandemic, which hit businesses pretty hard, especially small businesses. So could you tell me a little bit about the challenge you had and how you got to where you are today? So I started in 2018 and I did catering and then I started doing like a lot of the vegan festes. I did a lot of vegan festes like around around the state. So I did Minnesota, Michigan, Ohio, Illinois, Atlanta. So just I was just doing vegan festes all over. Then once the pandemic hit, all the vegan festes got canceled. So I panicked for a minute and then I pretty much brainstormed. It's like, I'm going to start doing delivery. And that pretty much kept me afloat. And with the pandemic and the delivery, so um, I, I think the pandemic shifted a lot of people to start eating more healthier. And that pretty much kept me afloat. The business grew every year of the pandemic. That's really cool to hear that you were successful and that the pandemic grew your business. I noticed on April 4th, you were awarded the Emerging Small Business of the Year Awards. How did you feel when you received that award? So, so my, I'm in Ribic and my, my Ribic sponsor nominated me. So I felt that all the stuff and all that. And then, so I just happened to, you know, I'm at Just Veggie and I'm taking orders and I get a phone call and they was like, is this James Bloodsaw? And I was like, yes. And uh, they was like, you the winner of the award. I was like, oh. I was <laughs> very shocked. I, I was like, I was, it was like I won an Oscar. So <laughs> That's awesome. I was like, it was so cool that they called. They called, and it just, it just all clicked in because I, because usually I'm on like deliveries or something, but I just happened to answer the phone and everything. So I, I, I was done, and I was, just, I was, yeah, it just blew me away when they said I won. I was like, oh my god. That's awesome. <laughs> And since then, have you noticed any more attention to your business? Any change? Yes. So they called. So so I've been knowing that I won for at least about two or three weeks, but they said that I couldn't say anything until they did a press release. So once they did a press release, oh, my goodness, I, I have, like, the M3 vice president, the vice president, or the, the senior vice president of M3 when we do a broadcast. And I got, uh, yeah, it's, it's just been crazy with all kind of interviews and everything. We appreciate it. How does your business operate now? I noticed that you're aiming to open up a business on State Street. So are you still doing deliveries? And I noticed you had a meal plan on your website. Yes. Yeah, so we, we also, so we do a weekly menu and we run out of 2817 East Washington. It's out of Christine's Kitchen. So it's pretty much, it's, they call it a ghost kitchen. So our share kitchen mainly. So we do delivery. We do DoorDash, Eastgreet, Uber Eats, Grubhub. We do personal deliveries. We do meal plans, like a monthly meal planning service. You can order that, and I deliver that on Tuesdays. And we do catering, too. Catering starting to pick up. And the new location is getting remodeled now. So hopefully by the first 
second week of May, we should be relocating into the new location. What's the most popular item on your menu currently? The chicken sandwiches and the pizzas is popular. So what's next for Just Veggies? Once you open your restaurant, what's your aspirations in the future? Uh, I want to to put my products in the grocery stores. So that's my next adventure. So are you excited to open your new restaurant? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm excited because, like, we've been getting a lot of phone calls for, like, the last six months. Well, probably longer than that. Eight, six months is, like, people call, like, um... Where you located at? Okay, we're on our way. And then I got to tell them, oh, no, we're not a dining service. They're like, oh, okay. <laughs> okay, next time then. Uh, so when are you going to open up a location? And I'll be like, uh, so that pretty much pushed me to the final location because we, we're getting like five to ten phone calls a day. As in, so for, people, for the customers to come in, they want to come in and sit down. So I'm so excited. Thank you so much for your time this morning. I really appreciate it. And I'm excited for Just Veggies to open up. Thank you, too. Thank you for uh, taking the time out. Easter has come and gone, but that doesn't mean there aren't plenty of bunnies out and about. Tonight on Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg breaks down what you can do to help protect baby bunnies nesting in your backyard. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today I want to talk about the little baby bunnies, because Easter week, right? (laughs) Happy Easter, if you do celebrate Easter. Well, guess what? Our Wildlife Center has definitely gotten an uptick of calls about baby bunnies, and baby bunnies are probably the most frequent type of, you know, situation with a species that we'll ever get a call about as wildlife rehabilitators. And I think it's because a lot of our rabbits, especially eastern cottontails here in our area, are pretty well adapted to urban areas. Unfortunately, they're at a lot of high risks to being uh, interacted with with our pets, so dogs and cats and other critters, uh, but also they're at risk of being hit by cars, whether they're just in a regular neighborhood with a low speed limit or if they're trying to cross the highways. Uh, it's a really tough time for mama rabbits out there because they are very much, uh, you know, trying to find the safest spot that they possibly can for their babies. And while it's not always going to be the best spot to us because it might be in our backyards, along a fence line, under a bush, or usually in a mulch pile, um, it is the safest place for her. You might have a dog or you might have a cat. So I wanted to maybe just revisit a few of the tips and tricks that we have found as rehabilitators to kind of help assess the situation with rabbits if you have them in your yard. So first, our baby bunnies are really, really delicate little creatures. They are actually probably the hardest species for rehabilitators to successfully get from an orphan stage to the point of release. And that's because they have very sensitive stomachs. They have a very high stress nature. They're not used to being handled by people. They're not like a domestic rabbit that you might buy as a pet. These are high stress little animals that don't really know what's going on, especially at their infant stages, because the first two weeks they're developing. Their eyes start as closed, their ears are closed, and all they know is the sensation of the temperature and the movement around them. So 
for little baby bunnies that are in the nest, you know, they're surrounded by their mom's belly fur, usually some dry grass, a little bit of a depression in the ground. And it's a really simple structure. It's nothing major, exciting, no really deep holes, exits, entrances. They just kind of sit together in this neat little pile. Typically, you'll see about, you know, four to six rabbits. I've seen up to eight to ten. And mom is just going to make sure that they're fully covered up and not exposed to the environment by using more of the dry grass and belly fur. Now, it takes them about four weeks from birth to development to be independent. So when I say four weeks, I mean one month. So if you're already finding rabbits in your yard right now and their eyes are just opening or look like they're newly opened, or their ears are flat against their heads, they're probably pretty close to three weeks old, meaning that they only have about two weeks left until they'll disperse from the nest. So that's really important criteria to be able to use to know how long you might need to deter your pet, like your dog, away from the nest so that those babies can be successfully you know, reared by their mom. The most important thing I can note is that a baby bunny is going to be at its best and have the most success when it's with its parent. In rehabilitation, as I mentioned, because they're such a difficult species to rehabilitate, their chance of success drops dramatically. So we will try everything in our power to make sure that those baby bunny kits stay with the care of their parents. And mom's milk is going to be the best for them, just like a human baby would be as well. The mock formulas that we have can work, but they're ultimately not the best for those babies. So mom hops over. She is going to be crepuscular most of the time, feeding around dawn and dusk. And she's going to remove the top layer of that grass and fur so that she allows those babies to suckle. And they get really full bellies. And by really full, I mean super pudgy, which is wonderful. I love seeing bunnies in that kind of stage. But if you've noticed that they've got a nice round top belly, it usually means that mom has been there to feed them either that morning or the evening before. So an important criteria to note if you're looking them over and you're not sure if they've been abandoned or orphaned. Now, most of the time, I would say orphaning cases are rare. The only time that baby bunnies truly are orphaned is if something happens to mom or dad. Let's say mom or dad, I would say in this case, mom gets hit by a car because dad really doesn't have any parental involvement actually after they're born. (laughs) So mom, if she gets hit by a car, she can't come back to feed them. The other option would be if mom is actively, you know, on the nest and letting them suckle, but maybe your dog uh, unfortunately grabs the mom while she's feeding them. You know, she's not necessarily going to run away or there could be the case where she's in the process and some of the babies kind of go with her, um, that can be a really traumatic experience for sure. So in those cases, yes, we would probably recommend if the mother is deceased, that rehabilitation would be the only form of intervention so that they would survive. Otherwise, if their bellies are plump and round, we're going to let mom do her thing for her four weeks until they are up and hopping around. So to prevent any interaction or destruction of the nest, if you have dogs like mine that are very interested in that kind of thing, Our tips are that either, if you can, take them to the dog park for a couple of weeks. No, that's a really big inconvenience for a lot of folks, but if there's ways to split up like small dog yards versus big dog yards, if your dog isn't super friendly um, with others or you're at risk of taking a dog to a dog park, then we can talk about things like taking them out for a walk instead of using the yard for the day, sometimes using the long lead leashes so that they can just get close to the nest but not actually quite reach the nest. That's going to keep the babies safe. And then 
and you can check on our website at www.giveshelter.org. But there's a, a way to put something like a laundry basket or even a wheelbarrow over the top of the nest. Um, if your dog's going to be out in the yard temporarily, when you should monitor them while they're doing this, um, so that the babies are covered and there's no way for them to get them. A laundry basket would have to be weighed down by something heavy like a brick if you've got a small dog. Wheelbarrow, just make sure there's adequate ventilation and that it's not too hot of a day out where it's going to you know, cook on the inside. That's going to be too hot for them. So things like that can still help if it's only going to be for a little while, like you know, 10, 15 minutes, if they need to use the yard and then come back inside. Just make sure to flip that basket or the wheelbarrow off of the nest so that mom has the chance to come back and feed them later. So you'll have to go out into the yard before your dog does. But these three very simple things can really, truly make a huge difference in the life of the rabbits because there's not enough resources in our area to care for the number of rabbits that people tend to find. And we want to give mom that chance to raise them. So that's my session today here on WORT, talking about baby bunnies and uh, what they look like when they're uh, well-fed and how you can avoid interactions with your pets in the yard. If you have any questions or if you do find any sick, injured uh, animals, maybe orphaned animals, give us a call at 608-287-3235. Thanks for listening. This has been Wildlife Weekly. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WRT's Live Local News at 6. Your reporter and headline writer this evening was Abigail Levins. Special thanks to feature contributors Kelsey Krogan, Jackie Sandberg, Madeline Afonso, and the editorial staff at the Daily Cardinal. Dave Lawrenson engineered this show. Nate Buggy out produced this newscast. And Sholly Pittman is a news director at WORT. I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Up next is Spanish Language News with Enrique Joe Patio. Good night.